Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the War Room Podcast. I'm Genevieve Lester, the Disaria Chair of Strategic and Theater Intelligence at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us today. Today's podcast is part of a six-part series on intelligence. The series approaches the topic from a variety of angles through a series of interviews with some of the field's leading scholars and practitioners. For a broad overview of several of these themes, be sure to check out the introductory podcast in the series, which I recorded with Dr. Jacqueline Witt, the War Room podcast editor. In this, the fifth podcast of the series, Mr. Adam Wasserman, a former CIA political analyst and CIA representative to the Air War College, and Chris Todd discuss the challenges of intelligence analysis. Chris Todd is a student here at the Army War College and an Air Force officer specializing in space. Let's turn to their conversation. Good afternoon. I'm Chris Todd. I'm Adam Wasserman. And we're here today to ask some questions of a uh, retired CIA uh, political analyst, uh, starting with the first question. This question is based on your professional development as a political analyst. Here at the United States Army War College, uh, we study a lot of military theorists, to include Sun Tzu. Um, he spoke of the need to understand the nature of one's adversary to include his strengths and weaknesses, as well as to understand one's own abilities in order to fashion an effective way to subdue or defeat an enemy. So in your experience, what has helped you develop as a senior political analyst using Sun Tzu's concepts? Good. Um, well, I would, I, you know, when I started as an analyst back in, uh, in 1982, I was a Soviet military analyst. And I think in our group at that time, not only was there uh, training just for any new analyst, you know, in writing and briefing and other uh, uh, ways to do our core business, but there was a fairly well-developed program for military analysts in particular. And we had, this included, you know, in-house programs. It included mentoring from uh, people who were more experienced uh, military analysts, the majority of whom at that time had, um, you know, military experience in the U.S. military, so that added to it. And then a lot of uh, classes and programs, some of which that we ran others of which were run, uh, you know, by the military or by the uh, other parts of the Defense Department. And you could go, uh, so we did training, you know, out at, uh, um, at, at Los Alamos and Vandenberg, and, you know, some of these were just regular military uh, training programs. So, but it was pretty well developed and coherent, and it had been done over a long period of time. And... Uh, you know, the Soviet Union was fortunately an enduring problem that we all thought then was going to last into the indefinite future, so you had a lot of time to prepare and get ready. Uh, then in, in addition to that, um, I did a year of language training, which, you know, uh, at the Foreign Service Institute, which is very critical, not only for learning the language, but you really Im get embedded in the culture um, and environment uh, of the of the target. So those were all, you know, just kind of the kind of experiences that, that I and many other analysts at that time would have uh, shared on the Soviet target. That's great, Adam. Another part of, huge part of this uh, academic year is we have learned to use critical and creative systems thinking approaches 
to help us analyze the strategic environment in order to develop future strategies. So while assigned to the CIA Red Cell, what techniques helped you to challenge conventional thinking in order to produce strategic analysis for your senior policymakers? Yeah. Well, the Red Cell, of course, was a, very, uh, a special group of senior analysts, and we kind of had the, you know, the, the writ to look across uh, the environment at any type of problem or any, uh, uh, and take a lot of uh, different approaches. So we there are there's a set of uh, of analytic techniques that the intelligence community or the and certainly in CIA has developed over the years that we and we were experts at using a lot of those so special types of creative brainstorming sessions where we would bring in a variety of people from around the agency and uh, for, and we also did a lot of uh, what if sessions so we would assume that some sort of crazy event had happened and then we would work back to figure out how might it have taken place or work forwards is to think of what might be the implications uh, for instance you know what if what if North Korea developed uh, you know a deliverable nuclear warhead which at that time seemed like far off in the future but in addition the red cell also um, was different from the in most of the parts of the intelligence community and the analytic community you're you're primarily immersed in a lot of sensitive secret material and every now and then you sort of reach out and maybe work with academics or work with the unclassified world, but you know that's, that's the exception, not the rule. The red cell was the opposite. We spent relatively little time in kind of the sort of sensitive classified realm, with some exceptions depending on the project, and we spent most of our time kind of outside. So it was an outside-in approach where we really tried to bring to bear you know, the best thinking and the best logic and concepts uh, from academia, from the business world, uh, from think tanks and stuff, and sort of bring them into the intelligence environment. Thank you, Adam. So during this school year, we're very fortunate that the new national security strategy was issued uh, while we've been students. We've been able to study and discuss its contents in an academic environment. The new NSS states, the United States will, in concert with allies and partners, use the information-rich open-source environment to deny the ability of state and non-state actors to attack our citizens, conduct offensive intelligence activities, and degrade America's democratic institutions. So in your opinion, what are the pros and cons to using open-source information for intelligence? Um, well, you know, the, the good news is that there is a tremendous amount of open source material out there um, and more of it is available all the time and the bad news is that there's a tremendous amount of open source material out there and there's more of it all the time and this has been true uh, really throughout my career I would say it's something that people have been worried about you know that the ratio of you know of, of sort of secret stuff to non-secret stuff is getting, and, and the value of the non-secret stuff is increasing. And, and how do we take a, an institution and a set of systems which is, you know, designed to collect sensitive material and incorporate um, everything else that's out there, whether it's in journalism, whether it's in social media, whether it's in academic literature, and so on and so forth. And I would argue that 
um, you know, this is a, it's a challenge that w it's not a solvable problem. It's a, it's going to be a perennial challenge for us and for everybody who wants to analyze or and do analysis, whether they're in the intelligence community or outside of it. So uh, I think, you know, a lot of events, but I'll take, say, the, the Arab Spring was a real wake-up call for me and for our organization in the, the, the need to get ahead of the curve in understanding social media and understanding of information that's circulating, maybe not entirely publicly, but uh, outside of government and intelligence channels in order to be able to predict or at least to get our arms around the range of possible uh, future developments. So very important to do. There are a lot of, um, you know, we're, we're putting a lot of time, effort, and money into developing um, sophisticated programs and techniques and, um, you know, automated systems to try and deal with this flood. The problem is digesting it into a form that analysts and users really can understand and make sense of. And I think we are we're making progress, but whether we're staying ahead of the curve as as the flood of information increases is, I think, uh, an open question. Thank you, Adam. The national security st uh, strategy also states that risk to U.S. national security will grow as competitors <coughs> integrate information derived from personal and commercial sources with intelligence collection and data analytic capabilities based on artificial intelligence and machine learning. So we have the capability as a nation to use AI and machine learning as well. So what do you feel are the dangers of using AI or machines in conducting intelligence analysis? Well, you know, I, and I think that was, this is connected obviously with the previous question too. In some sense, we are you know, we are required because of the information environment to make use of these techniques. And uh, if we don't, we will drown in the amount of information and we won't be able to see uh, patterns and variables and other things that are hidden in these large bodies. But uh, I think uh, partly, maybe because I'm, you know, from a previous generation, uh, but I think there are, there are risks in a, you, you become dependent upon, you know, complex systems which are really in the hands of a small number of specialists, and your confidence that the algorithms or sort of search methodology or other things that go into them are really accurate may not be terribly high. Or you may be, or on the other hand, you may be overly trusting and discover only well after the fact that whatever is sort of embedded in the, in the code or in the system is, you know, not really tracking uh, with reality. Um, and the other thing is I think there's an issue, you know, same thing in terms of the customers for this or the people, you know, when you feed this into an intelligence product and you say, well, how, did you get, how did you come to that conclusion, Adam, about, you know, that there's going to be a revolution in country X or, or instability or whatever, and say, well, our... Our, sophisticated, our AI program told us that. Uh, are you going to convince people in the policy world and others who are usually people who have a lot of confidence in their own gut and their own intuition and their own sort of personal re relations with, uh, with high-level contacts and peers, how are you going to convince them that that's, that that's for real? And I think there's going to be a lot of back and forth 
and a lot of, you know, we, we will have to work through miscommunication um, before we get to a comfortable place if we ever do. Fantastic. So upon graduation, one mission-specific role we may have to fulfill uh, is one of a strategic advisor and communicator. So as a senior political analyst, you regularly briefed senior officials, including the president and congressional leaders. So what are some ways that you use to enhance your advisor communicator abilities? Um, well, in, in addition, of course, to uh, there is a fair amount of formal training that we have in uh, briefing skills in particular. Uh, I taught at the Kent School which is our analytic training center, and we had programs, you know, from basic to intermediate to sort of advanced. So those are very valuable um, tools, and you get a lot of practice. You get, you know, you get uh, recorded. You get chances to uh, do, uh, you know, a range of different types of, of uh, briefings and uh, uh, oral communication. So that's that's one thing, and I think we. Uh, you know, you can't do too much of that. Secondly, um, I think, you know, when you're operating, especially at a senior level, when you're briefing, you know, for some, something at the White House, uh, um, for instance, uh, you're going to have chances, and you should, if you don't get them, you should insist on them, chances to, to pre-brief to your peers and also uh, maybe to your superiors, you should have a murder board, you should have people, you may well want to have people try to role play uh, if you look, you know, particular customers, especially if it's a potentially difficult customer or you're delivering a difficult message, and you should, you should not, you know, when possible, not sort of go in cold without some kind of uh, practice session of that sort. Um, and then you got to talk to the people who've been there before. You know, we have fortunately, uh, with the, in, in our own organization, you know, uh, professional briefers, people on the PDB staff, uh, and senior managers who've almost always interact. If you have somebody you haven't interacted with before, they have. And you should talk to them and get whatever they have to tell you about that particular audience, what kind of questions they like, do they like a lot of detail, do they like you know, to cut to the chase? Do they like lots of graphics that they can look at? Do they, et cetera, et cetera. All those things, uh, when you're operating at that, at a high level, uh, are, are, are stuff that can make the difference between doing an okay briefing. You can do an okay briefing just by being smart and knowing your stuff, but the difference between that and one that really works and that, you know, uh, in the, where they invite you to come back requires you to do this sort of, this prep work. Thanks, Adam. One last question. Another focus area during this year has been developing our interpersonal competencies of strategic leadership. Those include consensus building, negotiation, and communication in a joint and interagency environment. So how did you learn to overcome any interpersonal barriers in the interagency that may have existed? Um, I mean, the I think there are a couple of answers to this. One I, is uh, on the interpersonal level. You know, you really uh, do, I think, have to look at your relationships with your peers in 
other agencies or even within different parts of your own agency as, uh, you know, those are uh, critical professional contacts that you have to put time into developing and you have to make a conscious effort. I think one of the things I learned over time was, you know, I didn't do well at the beginning of my career is I assumed that those things were just kind of automatic. That, you know, in the course of business, you have to coordinate something or you have to get information from somebody and you just would pick up the phone and, you know, they would give it to you because, you know, I'm calling, I'm, I'm from the CIA. But you have to, um, uh, a better approach is to think, you know, especially if you're starting off in a new, um, in a new position or a new uh, part of your organization, sort of map out very concretely um, who your major contacts are. Again, draw on the experience that, you know, it's almost like some of the same skills you use for sort of interacting or briefing with policymakers. You have to interact with, with people, uh, your interagency counterparts as well. And if you can, you know, um, try also to have your, make your initial contact not be uh, hair on fire, I need you to do X. Uh, have it be something where you're offering something to them and reaching out ahead of time saying, hey, you know, we haven't dealt met before, but, you know, I came to this job. Here's some information might be useful to you. And then so you, you start with, you know, you're getting off on the right foot. So then when you do call, you're interacting later, and you don't have time to be maybe as polite or as, you know, uh, forthcoming as you might like. They're going to they're gonna cut you some slack. Um, and the other thing is I think there's always a, a certain amount of arrogance every, within our organization, but everyone that, you know, we're the ones who are really, who, who know, and you are there to kind of help us out. It's very, you have to overcome that and realize that uh, the people at NGA or DIA or wherever else are just as good as you are in the, you know, in their, in their field, just as professional, just as dedicated to the mission, um, and you're all on a level. It's not you sort of dictating to them. So thank you, uh, Adam. Uh, I know I personally learned a lot from you. Your thoughts were very insightful. I appreciate your time. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.